But the time we do have, Lord, would we use it wisely? God, this day is already half gone. What have we done with it? Lord, pray that we would redeem the time like never before. Lord, that we would live for you in a way that we have not seen yet. God, that we would pursue you in all holiness. And right now, by your spirit, would you lead us and teach us and guide us? God, would we learn more in the next few minutes about the grace of Jesus Christ than our hearts could ever handle? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. You guys there? John chapter 8. This is a very, very, very popular story in the Gospels. A lot of people blend two different stories together. One about a woman at the well that Jesus talks to. You remember that story? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. And there's another meeting that Jesus has with the woman. This woman was caught in adultery. And a lot of people blend these two together. So make a distinction in your mind. These are not the same, okay? The woman at the well was a totally different story. Today we're talking about the woman caught in in adultery. Now, how many of you guys are like, what's adultery? Okay. Enough of us. Sweet. Adultery. Uh, the best way that I remember adultery is it's mostly an adult kind of sin that we, at least in the actual context of it. So adultery, adults are typically guilty of this. It is when a married husband or wife is hanging out a little too friendly with someone else's husband or wife. Make sense? Okay. If I go kiss some girl who's not my wife, and my wife's at home, I'm committing adultery. And you can go as far down that road as you want. When a husband or a wife cheats on their spouse, that is adultery. God hates it, wants nothing to do with it, and cannot stand it. Within the context of marriage, it is probably the greatest sin that could ever be committed. God will not stand for it. And this woman is caught red-handed in the midst of adultery and brought before the judge of all eternity, King Jesus. But what she finds is amazing. It's both heartbreaking and encouraging. It's, it's over-the-top awesome. But sin, you guys ever been caught with your hand in the cookie jar? You ever been like flat-out caught in the middle of your sin? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Whose fault is it when you're caught right in the middle of your sinning? It's your, own, it's your own sin. It's your own fault. Okay. Literally, last night, I got caught with my hand in the cookie bowl. It, that is literally how it happened. I love cookie dough. My wife likes cookies. Hard to have cookies if someone else is eating all the cookie dough, right? So my wife makes these bomb cookies. So last night when she goes out of the kitchen, I run in, get spoons, goink, goink, and run out, and then just hang out and eat them real quick and then come back. Uh, well, she came in right when I was like, yeah. So that was not cool. Caught. Now, could I be like, it's your fault. You made the cookies taste so good. If they'd be disgusting, I wouldn't do this. This is your fault. No, it's not her fault. I'm the crazy person creeping around my own house, sneaking cookie dough from my own wife, all right? <laughs> it's my fault. Guys, our sin is our fault. You've got to get to a place of owning it. The woman caught in her sin, one neat thing that she never does, she never blames it on anybody else. She never denies it. She never says, it's their fault or his fault. She never says, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. She took it. The Bible promises something about sin that should be eye-opening to all of us. Numbers 32, 23, it says, but if you do not do so, God says, I will give you grace and I will give you time to repent and to turn away from your sin. But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord. You didn't sin against your mom or your sister or your teacher or your coach. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. 
I've seen it happen so many times in life. When it says that your sin will find you out, it is the same terminology used for when a pack of wolves is hunting down its prey. They're on pursuit, they're on the trail. It's only a matter of time until they catch up and kill whatever they're after. That is exactly how sin is in our lives. God says, you do not be mistaken. Take note, make a mark. Your sin will catch up with you. I've seen people eight years after their sin be convicted of it. Eight years. If you ever think, oh, I got away with it, no one caught me, Man, do not be mistaken. Just because you're walking in God's grace does not mean your sin will not catch up with you. God's not gullible. God's not unaware. It's only a matter of time. And the only thing that can get between us and our sin is Jesus Christ and the grace of God. These people will come to Jesus. We'll find out here in a minute. They bring this lady and they throw her down and they accuse her of adultery. It's obviously true. She's caught red-handed. And they say, Jesus, in the law, it tells us that she should be killed. Is that true? Is that true? Should someone, according to this, how much does God hate adultery? A lot. It is true what they bring up. It's, a, it's Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. The laws, first five books of the Bible, okay? It's referred to as the law or the Torah or the Pentateuch. Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, all right, you have two people cheating on their spouses, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. God hates, hates, hates adultery and unfaithfulness within marriage. He will not stand for it. So in a minute, when they refer back to the law, this is exactly what they're talking about. They're standing on the Bible. They're not making up some crazy weird law. It's not some twisted form of mankind. God loves marriage and hates divorce. We get two extreme highs here. An extreme high and an extreme low, sorry. And a lot of us live in one side or the other. Some of us are, uh, some of us live both, right? You're kind of almost jumping in between the two. You're really happy one day, really sad one day. You have a ton of friends one day, no one likes me anymore. It's like, what the heck? Well, right here we have two different groups of people. Some really high, high, prideful, arrogant, self-righteous people and a low, broken sinner. One appears to me much better off than the others, but it's just not true. So Jesus, take a look at your Bible, John chapter eight, verse one. His intent was to hang out with people and teach them. That was his plan for the day. Comes down from the Mount of Olives, probably up there praying through the evening. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, the next day, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. That was his plan for the day. Verse three, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Jesus is stuck right in the middle. We have an extremely high, high and a low, low. Some arrogant people that come in and like, oh man, look how good I am. Look how great I am. Look what we caught. How many of you guys ever like to point out your sister's or your brother's faults? Yeah, we all do, right? Mom, look what he did. Dad, look what she did. And when you were like in kindergarten, some of you guys were the ones like, teacher, he's drawing on the table, right? 
you're tattletaling all the time, and there's a certain kind of that that maybe is okay, but usually when we are doing that, it's because we think we are right and they are so wrong. As soon as we say, Mom, look what they're doing, or, Hey, Dad, I wonder where my sister is. And you know exactly what she's doing. Why do we do that? Because in that moment, we think, man, we're so good, and they are so bad. And right here before Jesus, we have a very high, prideful, arrogant, lofty, self-righteous group of people who come in, say, Jesus, look what we found. A sinner caught red-handed. We know it for a fact. It's amazing. But there's something about God. He doesn't address the statement as much as he addresses the individual spirit of it all, the motive, the heart. James chapter 4, verses 3 through 6 talk about this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You're doing the wrong things that you may spend it on your own pleasures. When we pray, how often do we ask God to do what we want him to do? Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That when we link arms with sin or we link arms with God and the things of the world, or when we link arms with the things of the world, we have to turn our back on God to turn our face towards the world. There's no other way. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, in emptiness, oh, I don't care what the Bible says. I've heard that before. Oh, it doesn't really matter. That the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Do you know what jealously means? Have you guys ever get jealous over something? What kind of stuff? Yeah, we all do. What kind of stuff do you get jealous over? What do you think? Yep. Your siblings, right? They just, uh, now, now why would you get jealous over your siblings? What? Because you're a middle child. All the middle child say, yep, right, right. Legos. Someone has more Legos or better Legos than you. All right. What else? Then maybe they can outperform you in any kind of a talent, drawing or painting or sports or whatever, and you're like, oh, I wish I was like them. It's not fair. What's that? They have a phone, right? How many of you guys don't have phones? Sweet. You have no idea how lucky you are. You're not enslaved to the world of technology. Um, but anyways, look, here's the deal. Oh, I wish I had a phone like them, so you're jealous. I want a phone like they have a phone. It's not fair. But then guess, this is how it works. Then you get a phone, but it's not a good enough phone because they just got an upgrade and got the new iPhone. And so in two years, you finally get the upgraded iPhone, but they have a new one, and then that's not good enough. And so we're never thankful for what we have. We just want more. We're jealous of what other people have. Maybe other people have more privileges, or you feel like you have a higher standard of living. Your parents let everything go with your little brother or your sister. They get away with everything, but not me. Uh, or maybe it's grades, whatever. Our jealousy is rooted in selfishness. It's wrong. When we want what other people have because we're not content with what we already own. God's jealousy is not like that. God's jealousy is a holy kind of a jealousy. That doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense. If I went home and some guy was on my porch giving my wife a rose, he wouldn't be there for long. Let's just say that, all right? Why? I would be jealous. That is my wife. I don't tell her how to live her life and how to spend every minute of her day. I don't lord over her, but she's my wife. Her affection, her love, guess what? It's mine. The Bible says she belongs to me and I belong to her and no one else gets to come between us. That's it. 
God says, in the same way, some guy shouldn't be giving my wife a rose or I shouldn't be sending love letters to someone else's wife or girlfriend. It doesn't, it, it, it's completely right to be jealous in that way. And God says, why are you playing around with the things of the world? Why? You're my son, you're my daughter. What are you doing? The spirit who dwells in us, it yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Isn't that awesome? Instead of wrath or judgment or punishment, God gives grace. But he says this. Think about the Pharisees, right? They come in all high and self-righteous and, woo, we're good. She's bad. We're awesome. We caught her in sin. Think about which group you want to be in. I'd rather be her. What? I'm not saying sin is good. But being broken before the Lord is great. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. To resist the proud, imagine a football game. As soon as they hike, whatever, you slam into each other, a complete standstill. God says, you come at me with pride and arrogance, I will resist you all day long. But he says he gives grace to the humble, the broken and the lowly. It says a husband should open the door for his wife. There you go, honey. Or help her down the stairs. Oh, don't, don't fall. Here you go. Those who come broken and humble before the Lord, he's like, hey, come here, right this way, right this way. I'll take care of you. It's amazing. We have a high group of people and a low, broken sinner. Both, though, what is amazing, meet the grace of God. Both of them do. She's busted, brought to Jesus, caught in the very act. In the context of marriage, there's probably nothing worse that she could have ever have done. But it's right where a sinner needs to be, is right before Jesus. Not after death. After death, you get the wrath and the punishment. Before death, though, you come to Jesus, you get life and that everlasting. Ezra 9, verse 8 and 9 says, God is our refuge and our strength. A refuge is a place of safety where we run to, like when a little kid has a nightmare and they run to mom or dad's room. That we run to Jesus when everything's wrong. God is our refuge and our strength. A very pleasant or present help in trouble. The Pharisees, right, they come to Jesus, they bring this lady, and they think, come thinking, look what we found. We found an actual real-life sinner caught red-handed. Careful. Be very careful. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore, let him who, who thinks he stands. You think, I got this. I'm doing good. I'll tell you right now. You think, I'm good. I'm good with God. Everything's wonderful. Everything's awesome. I'm, ho I'm humble. I'm holy. I'm great. Careful. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. In Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. See, a prideful person walks around with their nose stuck up, right? I'm awesome, I'm great, I'm so humble, it's amazing. That's how they work. But if there's a big cliff or there's something to trip over or there's a snake or whatever and you're walking around looking up at how amazing you are, You'll never see it coming. God says, you better be very careful because pride is what is right before destruction. The broken, humble person, though, right? The sinner caught in adultery right now, it's more like Eeyore. It's like, hey, how you doing? Doesn't matter anyway. Moping around, totally sad. But guys, right there in the moment of brokenness is where you find salvation and the grace of God and healing and restoration. It is amazing. I don't know why, but the place of brokenness is where we come so close to the heart of God. 
it's where he does some of the greatest miracles in our lives. And so the guy is like, doesn't matter anyway. Oh, there's a cliff there. I should probably stop. And Mr. Pride comes walking like, at least the broken guy was smart enough not to fall off the cliff. Pride's a dangerous thing. And so you have both extremes here. We've got to check ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6.11. It's a great reminder. A great reminder. Some of you today probably walked in thinking you're doing pretty good. I'll tell you right now, a, humble, a truly humble person knows that they might be humble, but they're not humble enough. The true mark of humility is someone who knows they need to be more humble. If you're like, oh, no, I'm humble. No, you're not. You're prideful. This is a reminder, as such were some of you. He gives this long list of sins. Talking to a group of people who thought they were doing so good. He says, whoa, you're a sinner. You were just like the world before Jesus came. As such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were set aside for the Lord, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The only difference, never forget this, the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the grace and the gift of God. That's it. We are forgiven They are not. You're not better than them, more privileged than them, more loved than them, none of it. We were dead in our trespasses and sins just like they are. The only difference is we found Jesus and they still need to. Pride goes before destruction. You have this super lofty, arrogant group of people. They come in, Jesus, look what we found. And this girl, remember, the temple was full of people. Jesus just wanted to hang out and teach. And they didn't just come into a secret meeting. It was a public gathering. She's probably full of shame and humiliation and guilt and wondering, oh my gosh, am I going to get stoned to death right now? They just asked Jesus, what do you say? They knew what the Old Testament said, but they didn't know what Jesus was going to say. It's very important that we both know the word of God, but also the author. Do you know God? Not just what he has written, but do you know him? If we don't know the heart of God, we will rarely apply the word of God correctly. So cool. They come in, they ask Jesus, what do you say? He completely ignores them. Totally shuts them down. Have you guys ever prayed for people you don't like? Anybody ever pray for people you don't like? Sweet. Good job. I'm proud of you guys. Now, how many of you guys pray something like this for people you don't like? Lord, that person's so mean. Help them stop being mean to me. And show them their, their errors of their ways and show them that they're wrong, right? We all do. We're less, less, now we're getting like this, right? I do a little bit. Like, I pray for my enemies selfishly. We do it. We do. I'll, hey, I'll put, I do it too. But what about when the Lord says nothing? What if we start complaining to God, like, God, show them they're so mean, and show them the error of their ways, and help them be right, and help them be nice to me, and God doesn't respond? What if that's his grace? He's giving you the chance to rethink what you're doing, to reevaluate the way that you pray. He bends down, he begins to write on the ground with his finger. Uh, You guys probably have heard this story before. He completely ignores them. What do you say? Just like, and just starts writing on the ground. They're like, um, people don't normally turn their backs on us. They definitely don't ignore us. And now he's finger painting on the ground. Like, what is going on here? What do you think Jesus is writing? There's no way to know. We can guess. 
I, I heard one of you say it. I have heard this taught a ton of times. Maybe he was writing out their sins, right? Tom, you lied to your mom yesterday. And he's like, oh, dang, busted. And he's like, Bob, you were kissing her when she got caught. Dummy. And it's George, give that dollar back. You shouldn't have stolen it. Like, or whatever, like, right? He just writes out their sins. Eh, it's possible. Maybe he wrote out, I've heard it taught, maybe he wrote out the Ten Commandments. And as you go down the list, they're like, oh, busted, 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 busted. That's possible. I don't think he was writing to them, though. I don't think he was writing to the Pharisees. I think he was writing to the woman caught in adultery. I'll show you why in a minute, but I think that when Jesus bent down, he didn't bend down. Remember, he turns his back on them. He doesn't write something for them. He writes it for her. And he begins to write on the ground, and I think maybe it was the promises of God. I'm slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. It's incredible. Take a look at John chapter 10, verse 10 for a second. Jesus tells us the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. They say, Jesus, what do you think? Should we kill her? They didn't know Jesus. Or they knew him really well. See, they said this trying to trap him. The whole thing was a setup. They never intended to throw a single stone. If Jesus would have been like, hey, pick up a rock and let it fly, man. Go for it. They would have been like, uh, 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 what do we do? They come in all, we'll take care of this. Jesus, what do you say? They knew him to be a man of grace and mercy. They knew him to be gentle and forgiving. And so they try and set him up. But Revelation 12.10 says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, the Savior, have come for the accuser of our brethren. You guys know who the accuser is? Nope. Satan. The accuser of the brethren. Satan's nickname, all right? Or one of them. Who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. When we walk around pointing fingers, oh, look what he did. Look what she did. I can't believe that. And look over there. We are not acting like Jesus. We are acting like Satan. We are following the attitude and the lifestyle of the devil. Be very careful how often you point the finger. Who's the bad guy? Not Jesus. It's pretty funny. They think they got Jesus stuck right in the middle, right? But what's funny is Jesus totally turns it on them. They're stuck in the middle. The girl probably feels like she's stuck in the middle. Jesus has these two people super high, super low. I'm stuck in the middle. And Jesus takes a spotlight right on them. Verse 5, now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They didn't know Jesus. This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Totally ignores him. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Was he down there like, hey, give me a second. I got to deal with these knuckleheads. I'll be right back. He doesn't question the law. What's Jesus going to do? Right? These people are standing there. Jesus, 
Here's a scripture, so now pick. Either stand on the word and stone her or go to the sinner and help her. Which one are you going to pick? That's a tough place to be. Well, it's awesome Jesus doesn't pick either. He just shows his heart. He doesn't question the word. God will never, 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 never contradict his own word. Never. So what is he going to do? Is he going to say, you know what? That verse isn't what it means. It means something different. Don't throw rocks. Or does it mean, you know what? That was a long time ago, and there's a new rule now, and so let's all just get along. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, adultery is not that big a deal anymore, guys. Just get over it. He doesn't say that either. Adultery is still incredibly wicked, horrible, and wrong, and stoning her is right. The issue was they didn't have the right to judge her. There's only one judge, and that is Jesus. They didn't have the right. So they continued asking him. They keep pressing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He didn't question or change the Bible. He questioned their heart. God will never contradict his own word. Not ever. Never. He didn't respond to the question. He responded to their motives. James 4.11 tells us, do not speak evil of one another. If you like gossip and you like talking to people and you like going on and on and on, cut it out. You think you're right and they're wrong, you're probably wrong, so cut it out. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of it, but you become a judge. You put yourself above the law, and now you're the one telling everyone what's right and what's wrong. That's not your job. There is one lawgiver who is able to save, and that same person is able to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? We spend so much of our time and energy pointing the finger and being a lot like Satan when we should be like the Savior extending grace because, hey, we have sinned also. As such are some of you, the Bible says. How does God guide? How does God do this? How does God speak to us? How does he, how does he lead? How does he guide? I'll tell you what, two things. God guides very calmly and very clearly. Always. He always guides very calmly and very clearly. He didn't stand up and start throwing rocks at the Pharisees, right? Like, you want to throw rocks? Let's have a war. He didn't do that. He didn't get up and just start yelling at them. He didn't get up and he could have listed their sins, oh, I mean, from birth. Just rattled them off. He didn't do that. He didn't even get mad at them. He just questioned them calmly and clearly. If you are perfectly pure in all that you do, go ahead. If there's someone in your life that you're accusing or that you're keeping at bay or that you think they're too full of sin, be careful. Because we are not sinless in our actions. How does God guide calmly and clearly? Look at verse 9. Then those who heard it, this is why I think God wrote to the woman, they weren't convicted by what they read on the ground. They were convicted by what they heard in their ears. Whatever he wrote on the ground wasn't for them, apparently, but what he said was straight to their heart. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one 
by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. This is nuts. How many people left? All of them. How many people were there before? 100, 200, 1,000? We don't know. It was a small group of Pharisees that come in, but remember, Jesus was teaching all these people, and so they're all there, but now they're all gone. Well, why'd the crowd leave? They weren't involved. Oh, 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 oh. crowds always get involved. Don't we? You hear someone gossiping, hey, did you hear what Christian did? Hey, did you hear what Susie did? Hey, did you hear what Pastor Dave said? Hey, did you hear what... And we all tell me more. We love it. And they're probably getting around and, oh, dude, check it out. They caught a sinner. No, oh, dang. You hear what Jesus said? Like, oh, no, he didn't. Oh, shoot. Like, dude, what happened? They're questioning Jesus. This is sick. And Jesus gets up. I don't think he just talked to the Pharisees. I think he talked to the whole crowd. He said, whoever, any one of you that are without sin, cast the first stone. This is from the oldest to the youngest. We could also say from the wisest to the less wise. They began to depart. Not just the Pharisees, but the crowd as well. And now it's just Jesus and this lady. But how does Jesus guide? Calmly and clearly. Conviction. You guys know what conviction is? Conviction, man, is when God shows you what's up. Conviction, here's the definition of it, is to show fault, is to expose something wrong, or to bring to light something, to expose it, to make it known. You guys ever go for a walk? Where I grew up, there's like a neighborhood pool. No one had pools, but there's like a neighborhood pool everyone could go to. But at night, when you get out of the pool, you'd be walking along with your flashlight, and you see cockroaches, it's like, it's like, Whoa! you don't know if you're stepping on acorns or half-dead cockroaches. It was, it was weird. But in the very same way, God does that. And when he speaks into our life, sometimes he shows us our faults and the things. It's like, oh, what is that? That's gross. Get that away. Oh, Lord, I hate that. Get out of my life. That's exactly what conviction is, and it happens in our conscience. What is your conscience? It's been called the kindergarten of conviction, the simplest place to learn how God speaks. It's the inner part of us that warns against wrong actions, thoughts, or motives. It's like Jiminy Cricket, kind of, right? We know it. Guys, if you'd begin to spend time in prayer, real time, I'm not saying hours and hours, but give God a minute of your day. Give him five and be still. Let him talk more than you talk. We talk a lot. What if God's just waiting for his people to stop talking so he could answer our questions? But why, we, uh, most of us raise our hands. Yeah, we pray for our enemies, and most of us half raise our hands, like sometimes selfishly. What if we're busy praying, like, Lord, help that person. They're so mean to me, and they're impatient, and they're just, they're mean. They just, ah, help them. Help them be right. Help them get better. And you're quiet, and the Lord said, the only reason they're mean to you is because you're a jerk. Oh, so they're not the problem? Lord won't even answer. You already know the answer. But we're too busy griping about the people around us to let God speak to us, to convict our conscience. We don't recognize it. Lord, help my mom. She's always mad at me. Stop doing the wrong thing, he might say. That's how God works. And it's in the stillness and the quiet parts of our heart. It's amazing. Hebrews 10, or 8, 10. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
going to jump to the end here. Take a look. Verse 10 and 11. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And so Jesus says to her two things, and this is where he ends it. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How many times do we go to God for forgiveness, but we run right back to the sin that causes us to be broken in the first place? Jesus says, Go and sin no more. Let it go. If we think that God's grace is somehow cheap or irrelevant or that we don't need it and when we need it, we kind of use it like salt and pepper, right? We just put a little bit on our lives when we need it and then we just go out and do what we want or, oh, if I get too dirty in the world, I'll just go to church and kind of take a spiritual shower, right? I'll worship and take in the word and I must be good with God now. He says, look, I'm not gonna condemn you. You're forgiven. The one person that had the right to kill her chose not to. Incredible forgiveness, he says, go, don't do it anymore. Don't take it for granted. Don't think it's cheap grace or empty love. Romans 6, 15 through 18 says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Oh, can't I just sin and then God will forgive me? You don't understand God. Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Certainly not. Do you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin, it's leading to death, or of obedience, leading to righteousness. How do you guys recognize when you sin and it owns you? You guys ever have problems with sin that you cannot stop? It's like it, you're its slave. It owns you. You can't stop lying or you can't stop cheating or you can't stop stealing or whatever it is. It owns you. You're not that strong. You're not that tough. You're not that cool. You are weak and you are owned by the sin. Jesus says, I'm not condemning you and I'm cutting it off, but this is where it ends right now today. Go and sin no more. When we enslave ourselves to Christ and we have to do what he does, it is under righteousness and it is under un into everlasting life. Think about it for a minute. If Jesus was here and he held out his hands, holes in his wrists, all scarred up, big old marks in his forehead from the thorns, and he said, you did this to me. I did this for you. Go and sin no more. You're like, yeah, I don't really care. I like hanging out with them. I like watching that. I like doing this. What if he's like, I died for you? Look, and he pulls up in his side and there's a big old hole from where the spear went through. And you're like, yeah, I mean, that's cool, but I just want to do my own thing. Every time we turn back to our own sin, we're telling God, I don't, whatever. I mean, thanks, I'll be back. Thank you. But I'm just going to do my own thing right now. That's not how the church is to be. We're not to be like the Pharisees and the scribes full of arrogance and pride. But we're not to be like the sinner who continues in sin. We're to be like the sinner who's forgiven and sins no more. Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your grace. 
You didn't beat down the Pharisees and you didn't cast out the sinner. Well, those of us that came in pretty sure of ourselves and thinking we had everything right, God, keep us humble, we pray. Those of us that are great at finger pointing and judging and elevating ourselves, Lord, make us low. And Father, those that are broken, they're living under that condemnation of sin. They can't get things right. They feel like they're always failing. Well, they probably don't recognize it, but that's the sweetest place to be when you're with them. And today, if you guys are going through that kind of stuff, if that's how you live your life, under the thumb of sin and condemnation, know this, if you confess and give it to Jesus, he says he will take your sins, they'll be like scarlet, burning red. He will wash them and make them as white as snow. And you'll be free to go and sin no more. You just have to give it to Jesus. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.